2: I'm Caroline Moderessi-Turani. This is American Metamorphosis. It begins low and deep. A rumbling that's so subtle, it doesn't quite register against our senses. It's a movement at the country's very core. Low, deep and unseen – But what is visibly and uniquely America, her hills, her plateaus, her mountains, are all formed deep below the Earth's surface, eventually stirred awake from the core by the slow movement of shifting plates on the lithosphere, the outermost surface of our planet. It's similar forces that drive America's political change. For centuries, people, much like tectonic plates, have cajoled and protested to push our country forward, to live up to its founding ideals. That movement has been marked by moments of friction when opposing forces collide along the country's own deep political fault lines. And the arc of that movement is long. And progress, of course, is not always guaranteed. Sometimes the pressure builds and the temperature rises, but the landscape remains static. To break the earth, to shift people's mindsets, and to reach new heights, it takes a special kind of alchemy and a special kind of leader. Sometimes the tensions in our country are about how we move forward, and other times about how we remember the past. In Washington, D.C., a struggle over history had been simmering for decades, and the fault line ran straight down the National Mall.
0: There are amazing people who have fought, who have crossed racial lines to, to help America move towards the promised land of equality, but there were equally people who fought against that.
2: That's Dr. Lonnie Bunch III. He was tasked with bringing to life the National Museum for African American History and Culture a project that was a century in the making, but had 100 years of pushback against it too.
0: When the museum was first proposed, it was just when the world was at war, World War I. And it was also the beginning, the height of sort of restricted covenants and segregation, um, legal segregation. So you have African Americans seeing this as both an opportunity to look back, but an opportunity to prove that they were worthy of citizenship. It didn't happen for generations. And then in the 1990s, Congressman John Lewis, the great civil rights leader, took this on. And for 17 years, he introduced legislation that didn't pass. The African-American story must be told,
3: and a National African-American Museum in Washington, D.C., is critical to telling that story.
2: Finally. In 2003, Representative John Lewis passed his bill and President George W. Bush signed it into law. And when Lonnie came on board two years later, he realized making the museum a reality wasn't simply a logistical struggle. There was also a much larger philosophical debate. How should the museum reflect the Black American experience in all of its complexity?
0: Early in this process, I received a letter Um, where somebody criticised building this museum and he said, don't you understand that America's greatest strength is its ability to forget? And I kept that with me to say, "Okay, my job is to counter forgetting.
2: It wasn't the last time that Lonnie would hear a conflicting opinion about just what story the museum should tell. Lonnie, you mentioned all of these different Aspirations and desires and the, the different expectation that people had for what the museum should be, what it could be, how did you manage all of the different stakeholders involved in the museum's inception?
0: I wanted to find the right tension by saying, "I want to give people not just what they want, but what they need to remember." I mean, one of the things I benefited from was 50 years of scholarship on history on African-American history that allowed me to say, "Here's how we maneuver." Here's how we thread that needle.
2: Threading that needle meant including a variety of viewpoints and stakeholders of both history and of heritage. For Lonnie, it meant an understanding that building the museum would mean embracing contradiction. It needed to at once bring people together and also allow for diverse opinions. It also needed some less abstract work. Though the bill had finally passed the museum would remain a pipe dream until Lonnie could clear some serious logistical hurdles.
0: Because I began this museum with only one staff, with no building, no site, no collections. We needed to raise more than $300 million in private money. Once we got through that sort of first 90 years, right, of people saying, oh, can this really happen? The real challenge was, beginning in 2005, how do we make something real that was only an idea? How do we find the resources? And especially in a political time, there were great debates over what race means in America. And so for me, it was really about many moments wondering, did I have the political sophistication and the cultural sophistication to do this?
2: The balance would be fragile, even tense. But over the next 11 years, Lonnie worked to open the museum, he remained focused on the decades of low rumbling shifts that had gotten him to this moment.
0: And the great historian John Hope Franklin said to me, your goal should be two things. One is you should tell the unvarnished truth. Two, you should craft a place so that when people go through, they're changed. And that has really been what I was trying to do was I wanted people to rediscover themselves. If they were African-American, rediscover their heritage. But if they weren't African-American, I want them to understand that, in essence, they better understand themselves now that they understand this story. And I framed it basically simply saying that this museum was a people's story, but it's a nation's journey.
2: You're listening to American Metamorphosis a new limited series podcast produced weekly in partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. We've been examining the very foundation of democracy, the peaceful transition of presidential power, and exploring how the obstacles and opportunities faced by new administrations have shaped modern American governance. We're looking at some of our most consequential problems.
0: Our home, Earth, is in danger.
2: And how, despite our often fractious government, America has rallied around issues that transcend politics and have transformed the country and the world. In today's episode, we examine how grassroots calls for political change have inspired leaders to make bold policy promises, and what it takes for those leaders to actually enact transformative change in business, in government, and
4: beyond. I think that George Floyd's murder and the public attention to that spurred a conversation to look back at the history, not just for Black people, but for everyone.
2: When an unarmed Black man named George Floyd was killed by a police officer earlier last year in Minneapolis, protests demanding justice and change broke out across the country and around the world. For Kedron Newsom reeves a managing director and partner at Boston Consulting Group who focuses on financial services, George Floyd's death brought new urgency to painful but important discussions
4: about the origins of systemic racism. A lot of the conversations that we had with clients and internally started with, do we actually understand the history? Do we understand how we got here? Do we understand um, the GI Bill? Do we understand um, Reconstruction post-slavery and what happened? Do we understand the Black banking community? do we understand historically how we got to this point? For Kedra,
2: fully understanding just how we got here is key to undoing the myriad inequities that Black and brown people face on a daily basis. But she knew that knowledge
4: needs to be followed through by sustained action. I think my big fear that this would be a moment that would last three months and then something would happen and we would all stop paying attention that this could be that turning point, or it could be a blip in attention and we go back to our previous version of normal. And I, I think that's how we have to think about this moment. But it's not a moment, it is a movement and it's a period of time over the next several years that we have to continue to pay attention to these points, make sure that we're elevating equity and really integrating equity and inclusion in a sustainable way into everything that we are doing across sectors.
2: But as Lonnie Bunch knows all too well, there are a lot of tricky steps between deciding to act and making a move, between passing a bill and seeing the ground finally shift. So what is the best path forward for leaders? Should they look to create consensus or should they put on the pressure? Should they look at the short term or plan for the long haul? In short, how do they move mountains? It's something President Biden is facing today, but of course, he isn't the first president to take office facing enormous pressure to tackle racial injustice and inequality in America. We have a new administration. We have a new president who wants to hit the ground running and seems to want to make a mark, and there's an awful lot of emphasis placed on this first one hundred days, which we're in the middle of right now. Do you feel like this is a very important moment for the federal government to actually seize upon this momentum in order to enact change?
4: I, I think the first hundred days are important, and I certainly think the executive orders and statements are are important. I think the complexity of what needs to be different, requires more time. And so I'm looking more at the next two years. This
0: note was a promise that all men, yes, Black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm about to sign into law the Civil Rights Act of 1964.
2: Healing transformation change. It doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't always go far enough. But in the past, we have seen bold action take place, and it happened during a presidential transition.
1: Well, by the time of Kennedy's assassination in 1963, the Civil Rights Bill really was the heart and soul of his domestic agenda. He had been a slow convert to the cause of civil rights. But we saw searing scenes on television of Bull Connor's police force in Birmingham, Alabama, turning fire hoses on women and children and knocking them to the ground, tearing their clothes off police dogs, biting them. Kennedy was enraged, along with the rest of the country.
2: That's Todd Purdom. He's a journalist and author of An Idea Whose Time Has Come, Two Presidents, Two Parties, and the Battle for the Civil Rights Act of 1964
1: because at the time of his death, the bill was bottled up in the House of Representatives and uh, struggling for passage. Johnson, who was a legislative master, knew that if he was going to have threshold credibility on any of the rest of his agenda as president, indeed the legitimacy of his presidency, his first task had to be to complete that unfinished job of Kennedy's. And he quickly summoned civil rights leaders and began to put his shoulder to the wheel.
2: But the bill faced bleak prospects in both chambers of Congress. In the Senate, the opposition was from his own friends and former colleagues. How much arm-wringing, how much haranguing did LBJ actually do to members of the Senate to actually try and champion the bill to make sure that it uh, was successful in its
1: passage? He never shrunk from advocating it. He never compromised. He never scaled it back. But the real story of Johnson's handling of the legislative debate is one of restraint. One top Senate aide told me when I was writing the book that he'd always regarded Johnson as the necessary shotgun behind the door to be deployed in the event of an emergency, to be deployed if he was needed. But in fact, Johnson let the lead be taken by the actual legislators in the trenches. He knew that as a former member of the Senate, he would be resented by his colleagues if he meddled excessively in the legislative strategy about how to pass it. The logs from LBJ's Oval Office to senators are full of conversations in which he's expressing all sorts of private doubts about whether they're taking too long, whether they ought to push harder, whether they ought to use unusual sort of strong-arm tactics.
2: Part of realizing the inevitable had less to do with what was happening inside the halls of Congress and more to do with what was happening in the streets across America.
1: Grassroots movements were incredibly important to the passage of the bill. And uh, in fact, they had been incredibly important to the success of the civil rights movement from its inception. I think in some fundamental way, Kennedy and Johnson both recognized that if the pressure was coming from the grassroots up on individual members of Congress, those members' uh, minds and self-interest would be moved whether their hearts were being moved or not. And I think that's the lesson of the bill. These groups showed their muscle, they flexed their power, and it it made all the difference.
2: It's true to say that a lot of business leaders eventually supported the Civil Rights Act as a way to stop their businesses being disrupted. But changing the minds of leaders in the private sector was not the same as changing their hearts.
1: There's a real part of the support for the Civil Rights Bill that was... um, let's say, not entirely altruistic. It was quite practical. The bill came to be seen as the way to end protests in the street, the way to end violence in the street, the way to end turmoil in southern cities and police dogs and fire hoses. And the movement had grown so massive and the groundswell of support so intense that there were plenty of conservative members of the establishment, business establishment and otherwise, who thought that only by uh, passing a bill that would desegregate public accommodations and uh, provide for fair employment and provide for, uh, you know, greater uh, fairness in elections and education and the in the whole gamut of American life, that that was the only way to, in a sense, pacify the, the country and pacify the movement. And of course, that isn't exactly what happened, Ultimately, you know, the the turmoil and the assassinations of the late 60s led to greater divisions in American life. And um, in a sense, that's why the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is both the high watermark of consensus, in a sense, on these topics and on this subject, and the last great moment when there was a consensus, and, and everything after that, the remaining 55 years, up until the Black Lives Matter protest of last summer, have in one way or another been a continued effort to resolve that fundamentally unresolved uh, original sin in our society. I think sometimes, Carolyn, we're going backwards. If
3: if you look at the rest of the, the economy, you look at the rest of the world, if you look at the totality of what we're trying to do, that is discouraging, but it doesn't stop me. It, nothing ever stops me from trying to, you know, keep lighting candles to try and make it better.
2: Jim Lowry has dedicated his life to realizing the promise of racial equity in America by advancing minority-owned businesses. He recently wrote a memoir called Change Agent, a life dedicated to creating wealth for minorities.
3: I'm still doing the same thing I'm in, in my 80s. I'm still doing the same thing of accepting the givens of the way the world is but never, ever giving up where I want the world to be.
2: In the 1960s, while he was working as a community organizer for Bobby Kennedy in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, he often met with business executives in Manhattan. And there, he learned that legislation alone was not enough to change the hearts and minds of corporate America.
3: I made a very, I thought, very insightful remark to this senior person who was a CEO of a major bank in New York City. And he says, Jim, I heard you, but your comments are not really valid because you're not really Black. That's what he said to me. It was this ignorance and naivete even in the highest levels of corporate America. In
2: 1968, after nine interviews, Jim was hired as the first Black consultant at a major consulting firm. There, he saw firsthand just how long the road to racial equity really was. Uh, I, my
3: degree was in international economics, but it, I was not business. And so and right off, it was scary. So I remember taking three transfers to get into Park Avenue, had to wear a three piece suit, had to wear a hat, had to wear socks over my calf, you know, to look like them. And to sound like them and to mimic everything that a successful consultant had to do. So I said, okay, I'm going to try it for a couple of years. And now, you know, 40 years later, I'm still doing it.
2: Racial equity has played a much bigger role in the business world in those 40 years. Jim founded his own consulting firm out of Chicago. And in 1978, he wrote the first major study on minority business development for the federal government.
3: When I got the opportunity to write the first strategy for minority business, I took what I had learned at those eight years at the preeminent consulting firm and did the same kind of framework in terms of analyzing what were the key problems you know, confronting or the lack of progress in minority business. I used the same framework to analyze what would make sense and how could we accelerate growth. And what made the study I think so effective I don't think they'd ever gotten anybody to look at that particular subject the same way. So we got tremendous positive impact from that. And my firm grew from five to 55 people in one year.
2: That study for the federal government also helped lead to the creation of the Minority Business Development Agency, which was designed to promote and to grow minority-owned businesses.
3: I think the biggest thing is that we're advocates. And then, you know, like with me and other people, they, they, they funded us to do research to tell the stories so they could be better advocates. I think they attempted to put people in different cities and different regions to provide, you know, you know advice and support to them to grow their businesses. Uh, we start shifting to what kind of support should small and minority businesses need?
2: When you see, when you're looking back and over your storied career and you see these areas that you've worked so hard in trying to kind of achieve some semblance of racial equity, when you see various aspects slipping or, you know, going backwards, as you said, what keeps you going?
3: You know, I'm smiling because my assistant, who who sees me now in all these different Zooms and different things, and almost every day she says the same thing, says, you're still positive. Why do you keep going? What I mean, I mean, she she wants to say you're old and you're still doing this. I mean, why? You know? And I guess I think finally I see real captains of industry seeing the problem the way it should be seen. That this is not a black and brown issue. This is an American issue.
4: There have been moments in history where the federal government helped widen the racial wealth gap. There have been moments in history in which they've sought to help close that gap.
2: That's Kedra Newsom Reeves of BCG again. As the Biden administration looks to open a new chapter of American history, Kedra is spending a lot of her time looking at the huge disparities in wealth between white families and families of color. She's interested in the causes of that gap and ways to close it through both public and private sector policies.
4: A good example is the GI Bill. Um, The GI Bill is left to the states to figure out how to implement. There are not great standards, which meant that if you were in a southern state that had discriminatory culture and perhaps policies or redlining, which existed everywhere, then, you know, those veterans didn't benefit from that bill. So that's certainly... Um, broadened the racial wealth gap. I think certainly the Fair Housing Act sought to kind of reverse that and to ensure that people of color could get homes. And you saw a massive increase in homeownership um, in communities of color um, during that time. But then we come to 2008 and we lose a number of homes in a crisis. And I think the question really is is that, are we making the um, sustainable and permanent changes in our policy to ensure that we can continue to close that gap. According to Kedra,
2: in the private sector, one of the ways to shrink that gap is to focus on financial
4: inclusion. There are a large number of people in the United States who don't participate in the formal financial system um, in a traditional banking sense, um, or may participate in a very limited way, and use a lot of alternative financial services. And so when we talk about financial inclusion, it's really about those Individuals on the banking side. It's about making sure that people have checking accounts, savings accounts, they're being charged fair rates, and really have access to start to build wealth, if you will, on a ladder. And so it's that piece that we're trying to really focus on.
2: Is there a barrier to entry for minority groups, for Black and Latinx groups to actually kind of access some of these financial services? Is it simply racism? Is it more complicated?
4: I think systemic racism is part of it. I think our current state is the result of that, if you will. 95% of people that are low to moderate income um, and are Black and Latinx can access an alternative financial services provider. So a check cashing, a payday lending location within 15 minutes of their house. We find that only about 15% of those people, and sometimes less, are able to access a formal banking institution.
2: So how do we start to change those systems?
4: I mean, I think, there, I think a lot of this is about innovation. And so if, if you think over the last 10 years, how much our lives have changed in terms of how we interact with our banking institutions. We use apps. We deposit checks using our app. Um, you've seen some really interesting innovations in some urban areas with the banking Branches that exist, and so we have to really think about where can we leverage innovation and technology to create low-cost service models that can reach um, these populations that currently don't have the same level of access as you know you might in a higher-income area, uh, and we think there's some real opportunity there um, to consider. Is
2: there a sort of willingness um, to make the necessary changes to actually? Appeal to different kinds of consumers to actually kind of bridge this racial equity divide?
4: I think that um, many organizations in the, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and all of the unrest last year are working to figure out what they will do, how they will participate. And I think we saw lots of announcements. I think the question that I raised in the summer, at least for myself, was where am I really starting to see changes? And and not just changes in discussions that we're having, but are we seeing structural changes within organizations? Um, and are we seeing commitments get into communities? So going from, I've pledged X millions or billions of dollars to, I actually have a check that I'm writing to go here.
2: Commitments are happening in the public sector as well. In his first few days in office, President Biden issued an executive order on Advancing Racial Equity Through the Federal Government. As far as I can see, as far as I read it, it's a lot of uh, the OMB is going to study this. What kind of actions are you looking for from the federal government in terms of actually trying to close this wealth gap?
4: It's a great question. I, I think the study piece is frustrating and it feels like we're delaying But I also, from our research, I think we're also just seeing how unequipped our current market structure is to get dollars um, to communities of color. Um, And it requires some real thinking and problem solving to occur at multiple points across the federal level, local, government, philanthropic formal banking, it's kind of a cross-sector, there are some questions and problems to be solved.
2: For Jim Lowry, it's that substantive, sustainable change that Biden has committed to early on in the transition process that could come to define his presidency.
3: So I think he has the power of the pen. He has now the votes. Really look at the policies, and I would say look at the minority business policies. What have you done since 1978? What has the federal government done? It's not a good history. If if I was Biden, that's the first thing I'd say. If you're going to have a legacy in this, you got to show something that you're going to do, that you plan to do from day one, and you were able to accomplish it in a three-year period of time.
2: You know, you got to have impact. For Smithsonian Secretary Lonnie Bunch, being inclusive was one of the key ways that he built consensus around the museum. And it was this same spirit of inclusion that ultimately helped him find artifacts for the collection around the country. You created the free program, the Saving African-American Treasures. Can you talk to me a little bit about that program and also why partnerships with local museums, local communities, were so important to getting the museum off the ground?
0: I felt that if the Smithsonian benefited from this museum, but no other cultural institutions did, then we failed. As we began to create Saving Our African American Treasures, which was really, one, an opportunity to help people preserve grandma's old shawl, that 19th-century photograph, well, the first thing we would do when we'd go into Chicago and we'd be partnering with the DuSable Museum or the Bronzeville Children's Museum, we'd say, give it to them first. Um, So they would build new audiences, new collections. The goal was to make sure that everybody benefited from our presence.
2: Lonnie didn't just have to collect artifacts. Remember, he also had to collect money. $300 million, to be exact.
0: We also recognized that it would be nice to get big money. But what was really important was to get small money from around the country to demonstrate that there was national interest. So we created a membership program when many people in the Smithsonian told me that was a really dumb idea, you don't have a building, and when you're open, you're not going to charge anybody anything. So, why have a membership program? It turned out that there was such interest that it became one of the most successful membership programs in the Smithsonian, bringing in millions and millions of dollars. But more important was I used the membership program and had it assessed based on congressional district. So, every time I went on the Hill, I could say, There are X number of people in your district that support this museum. So it was both a, um, an opportunity to raise money, to build support around the country, but also to use it as part of a political opportunity to let people know why members of Congress should care about this museum.
2: As a historian, Lonnie knew that, like the people who took to the streets in the 1960s and the legislators who helped usher in the Civil Rights Act, getting people to care often meant getting them to believe that change was inevitable. So Lonnie made sure that the museum reflected a space for gathering long before it had the actual space to gather.
0: I knew that it was going to be a long-term journey. So I said, let's not make this museum a project. Let's make it a museum from the day I started.
2: What do you mean by that, Lonnie?
0: My notion was, let's demonstrate how good we are that we just don't have a building. And so it allowed me to sort of do exhibitions both in the Smithsonian, traveled around the country, educational programs. It allowed us to do partnerships with museums around the country, finding collections. So what it allowed me to do is to say the museum exists now. i supported now. So it really was this notion that the museum is now a major ongoing entity. It just doesn't have a building.
2: Heat and hope have emerged from low rumbles for centuries, and doubtless there is more work to come. But sometimes, from this emerging, urging hope, from these slow shifts with marked moments of friction and fault lines and fire, come mountains.
1: Today, as so many generations have before, we gather on our national mall to tell an essential part of our American story.
2: On September 24, 2016, the National Museum for African American Culture and History opened on the National Mall in Washington, D.C.
0: And I have to be honest, when the museum opened, besides crying and then being fearful that I may have screwed up, uh, what I really was taken by was that day reminded me of America at its best you've got Republicans and Democrats, black and white, Asian, Latino, coming together to do something that was important. that's America at its best. And I saw that day as this wonderful moment of possibility. As long
3: as there is a United States of America, now there will be a National Museum of African American history and culture.
2: It was decades in the making and it represented every small win and every big loss. And for Lonnie, it was exactly as he'd hoped it would be. Not just a people's story, but a nation's journey.
0: I really believe in the greater good. I really believe that institutions need to define the greater good outside of the traditional bailiwicks the way they define themselves. If the work one does, doesn't help a country in crisis, doesn't help a country get closer to our more perfect union, doesn't help a country remember the better angels, um, then what we're doing is something that is important to us, but a missed opportunity to change the country.
2: On that day, Lonnie looked out and saw unmistakably a changed landscape. The ground was still shaking. The heat was still rising. But from this tension, from this rumbling, new heights would surely be reached.
0: My notion was, take the museum and say, what is the greatest things we can accomplish? Let us define those. Let us aspire to do that. Let us take the steps to get us there so that when all is said and done, you've contributed, even if it's a small way, to helping a country become the America we want it to be.
2: You've been listening to American Metamorphosis. Join us next week as we go from examining the racial fault lines shaping our country to global forces transforming our planet.